0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Matthew chapter 19 verse 1 says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, and of course this is a reference to the teachings of Christ previous to Matthew chapter 19 especially in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus began to really pour into his disciples and give them lessons on humility, like a child entrance into the kingdom of God, what it means to be great in his kingdom, his attitudes, especially concerning the loss. The disciples needed to learn the lesson, the mission of Christ. He exhorted them towards purity, making sure that they dealt with sin in their lives. He taught them about resolving conflict inside of the body of Christ amongst believers, and of course, shared with them about forgiveness, forgiving one another up to 70 times seven, speaking in hyperbole concerning living a constant life of forgiveness. These were preparatory lessons for the disciples to receive. And so when Jesus had finished these sayings, verse one, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So now he's getting closer to Jerusalem, entering into the Judean region. And verse two, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So Jesus here traveling towards Jerusalem, healing people, always willing to minister. The Pharisees come and begin trying to test Jesus. That's specifically what Matthew says. They did ask a question, but behind the asking was the, Testing. There were other motives going on in their question. And they asked the question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, as was the case quite often with the questioning of the Pharisees, uh, there was this desire to draw Jesus into a theological war. Divorce was a hotly debated issue in Israel at the time. And uh, there are always those who do desire to bring us into theological disputes. Paul said, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, there are those who cause disputes rather than godly edification. 2 Timothy 3, verse 7, those who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're just argumentative people, often argumentative people. Men I've found who just want to argue more than they want to be edified. And they were trying to draw Jesus into this debate that had taken over Israel on the lawfulness of divorcing one's wife. And notice how they ask it, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's what the debate had grown around. Are are we free to divorce our wives for any cause? And you, you notice the bent upon their question. They're not asking if a woman is about, allowed to divorce her husband for any cause. It's a very sexist argument. Is a man allowed to divorce his wife for any cause? And their debate basically came down to one Old Testament passage and one verse inside of that passage and one word inside of that uh, verse. The passage was Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 through 4, where because of the unrestrained divorce rate that had been occurring amongst the Israelite people, Moses gave the people a certificate of divorce. In other words, he put a system in place whereby a person could legally proceed with divorce. What they had previously was just sort of this Wild West kind of mentality. You could say to your wife, I divorce you, divorce her. She could then get remarried, then be divorced by her next husband, and you could reconnect with your previous wife and, and marry her once again. It just created this loose bond. And so Moses instituted a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of the heart's of the people that at least put a process in place. You couldn't just get a divorce or acquire a divorce in the heat of the moment. And so a certificate was given, but the word came from Deuteronomy 24 in which Moses had declared that divorce was for some uncleanness that was found. So the question in Israel at the time of Christ surrounded the word uncleanness there was a conservative view that said that sexual impurity was what the word uncleanness had in mind and then there was a liberal view that said that uncleanness could be defined as any displeasing thing that you found inside of your wife and as many people have pointed out previously this could be as extreme as saying i don't like the way she prepared my eggs for me, for breakfast, it's unclean in my sight, and I want to divorce her. So so a conservative view and an extremely liberal view. And of course, this issue of divorce has not gone away with time. Uh, it's a strong issue, at least in the culture and context in which uh, I minister. And so Jesus here answers this question. He said in verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them... From the beginning, made them male and female, and said, "Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now this is interesting because Jesus, of course, takes them first of all straight back to the revealed word of God. He says, "Have you not read? We're going to find the answer to our question, Jesus is saying, in Scripture. It's also interesting that Jesus looks at these Pharisees who indeed had read uh, the Bible. Uh, They had studied it quite intensely. It was a part of their background, their heritage, and part of the proclamation of their devotion, at least. And so he says, have you not read? It's, It's a little bit of an insult there. But he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? Jesus goes back to... The beginning of time. In, in, in other words, in order to understand Deuteronomy 24 in its proper context, you have to understand Genesis 1, where God created them male and female, and Genesis 2, where he says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You have to understand these realities in order to understand God's truest intention and truest heart concerning marriage you see they were looking at a passage in Deuteronomy 24 that had basically had to take into account the fallen nature of mankind Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning and says listen this is God's original intention the original heart of God is not that this would be a mere social contract for people to enter into destroyed by paperwork but that it would be something where two become one flesh. That's why Jesus said they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not verse six let not man separate. And I think we need to think upon this particular uh, reality. Jesus is going far beyond. By the way simply agreeing with those who were interpreting the word uncleanness in a conservative sense. It is true that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus declares that divorce is possible and can be, in fact, biblical as a result of sexual sin, sexual immorality, fornication, adultery. It is possible for those reasons, but they would have interpreted that it was necessary for that reason. Jesus simply taught that it was possible, but that grace and forgiveness and mercy is also possible. Can a married couple be reconciled even after sexual sin? The New Testament Christian answer to that question is a resounding absolutely. And so here, however, we should pause for a moment and consider the reality of Jesus he says listen this is the heart of god that when there are two who be who come together they are no longer one uh, no longer two but are now one flesh and what god has joined together let not man separate and the body of christ the church would do well to consider and to have a deep belief in the permanence of marriage. Now, I reject the idea that there have been popular statistics that have been quoted trying to demonstrate that the divorce rate inside the church is the same outside of the church. But I think once you begin to ask a few more questions, studies have shown that once you ask other questions that basically help you figure out if you're dealing with a nominal Christian, uh, a cult church attender, uh, just a religious person or a real true believer. The reality then is that the numbers are skewed in favor of real true believers. You know, th- th- that in general, we have much healthier marriages, marriages that last much longer than they do in the secular or even the religious world. Uh, that evangelical true believers, you know, really have uh, wonderful statistics when it comes to how our marriages are doing. That said, it would be good for us to believe in the permanence of that marriage covenant. It's not a contract that you sign, you know, a, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of agreement. It's a covenant that two people are making with one another. And a covenant, it's really Uh, irregardless of how the other person behaves. And so there's a laying down of rights, laying down of life as the two become one flesh. And the health of marriage oftentimes is encouraged by a married couple behaving like the one flesh that they already are. You know, not living as if they're two distinct and separate individuals, but that living in a way that their life is is vitally connected to one another. So they said to Jesus, verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, Moses had not commanded this divorce. They'd taken the concession for uncleanness and received it as a commandment for divorce. So they say, why did Moses give that command though for the certificate of divorce to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So again, Jesus goes back to the beginning and he tells them, listen, the whole reason that Moses had to do this was because of the, the hardness of your heart. Marriage success is connected to the softness of heart that a couple brings inside inside of that marriage a soft pliable open-heartedness toward one another and i find that oftentimes it is the man who has a hard time having a soft heart with his wife being tender being open there's a hardness within him and jesus said it's the hardness of heart that required that certificate of divorce but from the beginning, again, he continues to point out the original intention of God. From the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Again, there's that theme. We saw it there back in Matthew chapter 5. And we see it again. Except for sexual immorality. And marries another, commits adultery. So, sexual immorality allows the possibility of divorce to take place, but it is not an uncleanness that is commanded uh, in scripture. Divorce additionally takes place in the New Testament economy uh, through abandonment, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12 to uh, 16. And so, uh, but here he holds out sexual immorality. Even God there in Jeremiah 3, verse 9, however temporary it might have been, there was a divorce of of God from his people as a result of their uh, sexual immorality. Jeremiah 3 verse 9, They committed adultery, so God said, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. You know, sexual immorality, adultery, it deals a crushing blow to the oneness of a marriage. Now the disciples respond to this whole thing by saying to Jesus, If such is the case, verse 10, of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They they saw that this was a major covenant that Jesus was holding out. It was shocking to them. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, Jesus says an interesting thing in response to uh, the disciples. You know, they're kind of overwhelmed saying, man, this is a, a serious thing to be married then in, in Jesus' economy and in Jesus' view. And Jesus says, yeah, that's true. Not everyone's going to be able to receive this marital covenant and commitment. Uh, and by the way, guys, There are those who have been born as eunuchs. In other words, some kind of, uh, you know, deformity or something like that is is, uh, just there's no desire for a woman inside of them. And and then he says, you know, there are those who have been made eunuchs by men. And this would often be the case in royal courts. They would castrate men so that they would not uh, uh, be able to and would not desire Uh, The women that they were there to protect. But then he says there's a third camp. There are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Again, nothing physical is happening here. There's no physical castration that's been involved, but a decision for singleness for the sake of the kingdom. Paul the apostle had chosen this kind of life. He expounds upon it at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Even in one sense, tries to recruit others into that form of life. And when you consider Paul's ministry, you understand he could not have done the things that he did had he been a married man. Uh, he was able to go places and do dangerous things that would not have been wise for a married man to engage in and he had to live a simple, streamlined, efficient, and in many ways impoverished kind of man. He could do anything for anyone at any time. As a result of his singleness, he did not have that married family uh, obligation. In verse 13, it says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. It's shocking that the disciples would rebuke these children from coming to Jesus, especially when you consider that just in the last chapter, Jesus had told them that to stumble a child, uh, it would be better for a person to tie a millstone around their neck and be thrown into the ocean. But here the disciples have this perspective that Jesus was too busy and too serious for children. So they rebuke people who are wanting Jesus to touch their children and bring a blessing upon uh, them. And Jesus said, let the little little children come to me. Do not hinder them for such uh, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, unfortunately, I've heard this saying of Jesus quoted uh, regarding as a some kind of proof text for allowing children into the adult church sanctuary or something like that. And each individual church needs to decide how to handle such matters. But I don't think Jesus is talking about the church or talking about uh, the Sunday service or a children's ministry environment. I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, there are things you can do to hinder children from coming to Christ. Do not do those things things. Parents must encourage their children, bring them to the Lord, show them the Lord, make sure that they do not provoke their children to wrath through hypocrisy or disobedience or abuse or neglect. Bring the children to Jesus. Do not hinder them. And Jesus laid his hands on them, verse 15, and went away. I just love that. Jesus, the ultimate man, laying his hands on these children. And behold, a man, verse 16, came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So this man approaches Jesus to ask him what good deed he must do to have uh, eternal life, which is the question that mankind is so often asking. And We learn from the uh, rest of this text and also from Luke chapter 18 that this man was wealthy, uh, that he was young, and that he was a ruler of some kind, that he was in leadership. Some have actually guessed that this was Paul the Apostle while he was still Saul of Tarsus. And of course we don't know that, but he did fit that kind of description, rich and young, and in a form of leadership there in Israel. And Uh, The man says to him, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, it's probable that he called Jesus good teacher. And Mark 10 actually tells us that uh, that's exactly what he said in Mark's record of this particular conversation. There's a little bit of uh, manuscript debate here about in uh, Matthew 19 on whether he said good teacher or teacher. But Jesus said there is only one who is good, and he's referencing uh, God. And so uh, Jesus, in one sense, is making a statement of deity. Think about why you're calling me good. God is good. Why are you you referring to me as good? Uh, Don't you understand that the reason is because I am God in the flesh? And so Jesus just tells him as an answer, well, if you'd like to enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, however, in verse 18, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus quotes from the tablets of the law, Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20, Leviticus 19. All of these were good commandments for this man to keep. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, which is what is required for eternal life. He said, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, The man replies to Jesus concerning the commands. He says, you know, Jesus, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And and here's the problem with this man. He hadn't kept all of these commandments. Not in the truest sense of keeping them. Jesus declared to us already in the Gospel of Matthew, especially in Matthew chapter 5, that the problem is the heart of man. Uh, We can hold fast to things like thou shalt not murder but jesus declared that if you're experiencing hatred in your heart to your brother you're already guilty we can hold fast to things like thou shalt not commit adultery but when you look upon a woman to lust for her in your heart you're already guilty so there's the matter of the heart and i don't think this man was properly accounting for that particular issue so jesus says something to him That would enable him to probe his heart and realize that the problem was internal, not external. And so Jesus said, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And this man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And I don't think Jesus here is, we can't misunderstand him. He's not advocating a life of poverty. There are those who hold to a prosperity doctrine, and there are some who unfortunately hold to a poverty doctrine as well. Uh, different people have different callings, to be sure. Uh, but Jesus wasn't advocating some kind of a life of asceticism. What he was doing was pinpointing the problem in this man's heart. And this man had a covetous heart. He needed to see that in, inwardly he was a lawbreaker. The interesting thing here is that this is one of the ways in which Paul the Apostle began to have his heart opened up to receive Christ. In Romans chapter 7, he said, When I heard, Thou shalt not covet, in my heart I realized that I was a guilty man. There was nothing that he could do externally to keep himself from coveting. He just simply was a coveter, a covetous man. And so this man was sorrowful he had great possessions he realized that he could not attain to uh, salvation by his own works by his own merit he was on his way at this point now jesus said to his disciples verse 23 after this man walked away truly truly i say to you only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus here announces the impossibility of a rich person entering in to the kingdom of God. And some try to interpret the eye of a needle as being some gate uh, there in Jerusalem that was used after hours, which you know, was possible to get a camel through, but not all that easy. But when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, verse 25, saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I don't think he was speaking about a gate that was possible because he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible possible. Now, this isn't something that's exclusive to the rich. It's just that this man was a wealthy man and his wealth was an obstacle to him receiving the message of the gospel. But, however, even though it was impossible with him, just like it's impossible with any of us, with God, all things are possible. And when he says that, it's important not to take that phrase in isolation as a vacuum, even though it is true. It's important to remember that he is applying this truth directly to the context of salvation. God is able to save anyone. Then Peter, verse 27, said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? You know, hey, we've abandoned everything we've had to follow you, unlike this man. So what will we get? (laughs) I love Peter's brutal honesty just says what's on his mind and so jesus said to them truly i say to you in the new world when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And I believe that here what Jesus is saying is a, is a twofold promise, which is very encouraging. Number one, directly to the disciples who would become the apostles, he lets them know that they will receive honor in the future millennial physical earthly reign of Christ. It wasn't going to happen when they thought it would happen, but it would be even in our distant future. And so, or perhaps in the not so distant future, but the millennial reign of Christ, these men through their devotion would be will will be honored uh, during that time. But he goes on to say, everyone, everyone who's left father or brothers or sisters or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. This speaks of, You know, not just specific honor for the apostles, but a universal honor for all who will make these sacrifices to the Lord in this life. Listen, nothing that you lay down in this life, you won't regret any of it in the next life. We will rejoice for every sacrifice that we made, knowing that it was well worth it for the great glory of our King. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.